0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 18th of January 2021 and this is episode 191. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian Dr James Connolly, lecturer in modern French history at University College London. We discuss his research into the French experience of military occupation by German forces during the First World War. He's recently written a book titled The Experience of Occupation in the Nord 1914-1918 Living with the Enemy in First World War France. This is published by Manchester University Press. James spoke to me over the phone from his home in London. Hi, James, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War?
1: Hi, Tom. Well, firstly, thanks for having me uh, on the podcast. As you mentioned, I think I'm a lecturer in modern French history at UCL. Uh, and my research specialism is military occupations, and in particular, the way people, occupiers and occupy uh, relate to each other and kind of deal with each other in uh, this situation, and basically how people behave under military occupation. So uh, my previous research focused on the occupation of northern France in the first First World War, and actually just a specific part of northern France in the First World War, one département, department, essentially the French equivalent of a county. Um, And the way I became interested in this topic was actually because I was interested in the Second World War uh, as an undergraduate uh, and MA student. And I learned a lot about France's occupation, then the kind of the occupation, the capitalized occupation. Uh, But then I thought, well, there must have been an occupation in the First World War, but clearly the trenches cut through France, there must have been a part of France that was occupied um, by the Germans. Uh, And so I looked into this, I looked into it for my MA uh, dissertation. Uh, and that's what i wrote it on that kind of created the the building block for my phd and further research essentially um i should also mention this is an unofficial way in uh, when i was younger i really enjoyed blackadder and in particular blackadder goes forth so not quite the same topic as it were but still a way in for lots of historians i'm sure
0: well as we know blackadder is actually just spend some time in, in behind captured lines in one of the episodes so why <laughs>
1: so why do you think this subject's important well i think it's important because i mean it has largely been forgotten now um even by the French, although it's been there's been some kind of measures to to rectify that with the centenary commemorations, but in general it, it remains forgotten, and, and I think this is a problem because it was a central part of the war. I mean, it was the central war aim of the Allies was to liberate Belgium and France, clearly because they've been invaded uh, by the Germans. And actually, the treatment of the population in Belgium, uh, occupied Belgium and Ger- uh, and France, um, was something that was mentioned quite a lot during the war. For example, in the British Parliament by various ministers, you can see this in in the Hansard, in the records of Parliament. It was mentioned a lot in propaganda. And it was actually a key way of trying to get America on the side of the Allies to show how badly the population had been treated uh, by the Germans. And you get some things like uh, in 1916, there's the deportation by the Germans of about 20,000 uh, women, men uh, and children from the kind of occupied tri- uh, sorry, industrial triangle in the occupied area of Lille, Roubaix, and Turquan, these kind of three big industrial towns. That creates international outcry at the time. And you get the King of Spain gets involved um, they try and get the Vatican on board and so on. So this is something that was really important for everyone in the world at the time, and yet we've forgotten it since then, including the French uh, themselves. So I think we can't really understand the First World War fully if we don't think about this key aspect of it, essentially. When
0: we talk about the German occupation of French territory during the First World War, what exactly do we mean by that? What sort of geographical area does this cover? And how many people were subject to German rule during the Great War?
1: So what you get is an occupation that lasts the whole war, essentially, so from October 1914 to October 1918. And it's all the areas clearly behind the German... German trenches. And this totals 10 French départements, departments or counties. Um, and this is essentially north and northeasterly France. So the areas by the Belgian border and by the German border. And so what you get is nine of these departments were partially occupied because the tr- trenches, of course, run through the departments. Um, and those, if you're interested, are the Inn, the Marne, Meurthe-et-Moselle, Meuse, Nord, Oise, Pas-de-Calais, Somme, and the Rouge. And then you only get one department that's fully occupied, uh, and that is the Ardennes. And that's actually where the, the Germans base their headquarters uh, for much of, uh, of the War, essentially that's their headquarters on the western front and so when you combine this what you get is according to, to one scholar about 3.7 percent of french territory so you know it's not a massive area but it's a significant area one because you know it is still french territory that's occupied by the germans and also actually it was a very productive area with regard to industry and with regard to uh, agriculture so for example you get um, a lot of factories particularly in the area that i've studied in my book um as i mentioned lille Roubaix, and Tourcoing this industrial triangle very big cotton mills there uh, and other factories and you also get a lot sugar beet production in this area. So losing this territory was a real blow uh, for the French in the First World War. So there's a kind of economic incentive to, to get this back as, as well. Um, so yes, what you, you get is the occupied area, uh, unsurprisingly, remains fairly static when you think about the you know the area that uh, the Germans control. But there is some movement, clearly, in 1917 when the Germans retreat to the Siegfried Hindenburg line. Uh, so this frees some territory, reduces the occupied area slightly, uh, but not that much and doesn't really affect things with regard to the population because uh, the Germans actually evacuated the civilians but back further into occupied France when they uh, withdrew and also, as you may know, they engaged in scorched earth tactics. So they, they burned down houses, destroyed some infrastructure, um, planted traps, uh, poisoned wells, this kind of thing. Um, so th- the really, the area doesn't change that much. Now when it comes to the population, um, we're talking about just over 2.12 million French people who were essentially trapped in the occupied zone by late 1914. Um, so, and this is a more significant number. Uh, this is about 8.4% of France's population. So if we round that up, obviously, you're talking about one in 10 10 French people who have experienced occupation in this war, so it's not an insignificant uh, number. The overall number does reduce slightly as the war goes on, because the Germans implement voluntary and actually forced evacuation through Switzerland uh, down to unoccupied France. It takes a long time, usually about six months They get interrogated by the Secret Service. But overall, you get about 500,000 people by November 1918 who are kind of freed, as it were, from the occupied zone here. So it, the population drops, but overall we're talking about you know at least 1.5 million people for the duration of the war. So
0: let's, let's start. So how did the germans treat the civilian population now, obviously that might depend on, on what perspective you take and secondly how did they deal with people who broke their rules in in, in terms of the local populace
1: yeah i mean the, the question of perspective is always uh, a tricky one uh, and it's true that i come at this mainly through french sources although there are some scholars who look more at german sources now from the french perspective uh, particularly contemporary perspectives they literally describe the germans have ha- as having terrorized the civilian population now i would say you said well terrorize a bit of an exaggeration but it has has to be said that there were many ways in which the germans treated the the occupied population pretty badly at the very least they engaged in policies that caused a fair bit of suffering so for example i mean you mentioned german rules the germans imposed hundreds probably thousands of strict rules and regulations uh, on the locals too many to outline here but i can give it a, a few examples um and you can see this when you're in the archives with the multicolored posters the germans put up and um, informing the population about the rules obviously this is before the days yeah. of tv uh, and even radio so the only way you could find out what the german rules as well, was by walking around and reading uh, their posters. So, for example, uh, the French had to change their official time on the clocks and uh, their watches to German time, which then was an hour ahead, and they would check this. The German soldiers would come up to you and ask you the time and you had to make sure you gave them German time. Um, French people had to leave their doors open at night in case of bombardment um, so that Germans could kind of take shelter in, in their houses that came to it. Um, they had to stick lists of those who were in the house on the front door so that they could control, the Germans could control the population. They had to kill all their carrier pigeons, which was a real problem in this area because actually is a very big uh, pigeon fancying area, um, and this was clearly because they didn't want the Germans didn't want the population to use the pigeons to send messages to to the Allies. Um, and what you get is actually a feeling of isolation, of acute isolation. So you get curfews. You, you uh, people were banned to travel outside of their local areas without a pass, which was hard to come by. All French publications were banned. It was even very difficult to write letters to people within occupied France, and nearly impossible to contact people in unoccupied France. Eventually, they could do this after 1915 through Red Cross postcards, but they were just kind of Existing formulas that you crossed out, saying I'm fine, I'm not fine, etc. Now the Germans also tried to exploit the resources of the occupied area as much as possible, partly because they didn't have access to uh, colonies in quite the same way uh, the British and the French did. So what they do is they try and get as much money as they can from the occupied population, including by um, introducing fines for those who break the rules. And some of the rules you couldn't help but break. So it's a kind of lose-lose situation for the French. For example, in the town of Roubaix, according to French sources, Germans requested eggs from chickens of both sexes. So clearly, you can't fulfil that rule there's another town outside of my area but in, in Picardie called Guise, where the Germans said oh you have to present a certain amount of live uh, fresh fish every month except there was also another poster that said fishing is banned in the area so again you can see the buying people are in here and then you, you get, see uh, policies such as the famous tax on dogs so you have to give, you want to keep your dog you have to pay the Germans, pay the enemy and if not you have to take it to the abattoir and the Germans will kill it for you um, and then you see requisitions of many goods from people's homes that could be used in the war effort or indeed from churches so bells melted down and copper people had the list was very long uh, indeed they also took a lot of livestock Uh, so what you get is essentially a near famine situation developing um, in the occupied area and this leads to the intervention of the largest humanitarian relief effort in history up to this point led by future american president herbert hoover which was called the commission for relief in belgium and had a french uh, subsidiary essentially and so these are the rules and this is the kind of strict situation in which people uh, live and you ask about punishment for those who who break the rules well firstly you get fines which i mentioned which could be implemented on an individual uh, uh, level. Beyond that, there's a way of trying to guarantee the good behavior of the population, which is hostage taking. So they get local, what they call local notables. So it could be mayors, municipal councillors, bishops, and so on, and imprison them. Uh, and some of them are sent actually outside of the occupied zone to Lithuania, or in particular to Hudsminden in Germany. There you get about 300 people from from the north there. And the idea is, if the population behaved badly, we will execute these hostages, which they didn't do uh, at any point during the war. Beyond that, you get um, imprisonment, clearly imprisonment locally within the occupied zone. Um, deportation of individuals to Germany, collective fines on entire towns or villages, um, even for things that they had nothing to do with. So, for example, when the Allies bombed uh, Alexandria, uh, sorry, Alexandria and Haifa, so in Egypt and Israel, in 1915, the town of Valenciennes, and I don't know why this was chosen, was fined for this, even though they clearly had nothing to do with that. And then finally, there's forced labour. It's not always a punishment, sometimes it's just a policy, um, but this usually involved uh, agricultural work, in particular, cutting down trees in the forest, or digging trenches, reserve trenches, but it being Sent to the front line under bombardment to dig trenches and if you didn't want to engage in forced labor if you tried to resist you could be tortured and people were often uh, tied to posts left in fields during the rain tied with barbed wire around their wrists and tortured so as I said a very harsh occupation essentially
0: and so did, how did the French populace react to uh, this treatment was there collaboration
1: so as always <laughs> the classic historical answer is it depends what you mean by collaboration <laughs> uh, how you define it um, there were forms of what we I think we would call uh, collaboration even though people at the time didn't use the term because obviously that's kind of more linked to uh, the Second World War. Uh, And actually in my research, I prefer to use a term that was occasionally used, which is misconduct, uh, a bit vaguer than collaboration. Um, But in practice, this means behaviours that are considered kind of unpatriotic or immoral at the time, including official legal treason as defined by the French Penal Code, which was known as intelligence or commerce uh, with the enemy. So what we see is a few different forms. So the first one is in a way the most obvious, those who work directly for the occupiers and in particular voluntarily. Um, So there's people who voluntarily make sandbags for them in the factories that can be used in the trenches. Um, and these are usually women, but not always. Um, then there's the male industrialists who own the factories who, who produce sandbags uh, for the Germans, although there was some uh, attempted resistance to this. You have men who actively help Germans in their searches of other people's property to see what they can requisition. Um, in some cases, you even see these Frenchmen wearing German uniforms or even carrying a gun. Very rare, but you know, very striking examples. You have people who engage in long-term commerce with the Germans, who try to profit from the occupation and actually dozens of mayors are accused of this uh, fairly or unfairly after the occupation so they for example could say oh can you requisition all the pigs from uh, a socialist who I don't like or can you imprison someone you know with whom I've got a petty dispute essentially and all of these were accusations but there, ha- there were cases after the war of people being tried and found guilty for all of these various um, things now another aspect is people who spied for the Germans so they engaged in counter-espionage spying on their compatriot and um, tried to dismantle resistance networks uh, which I'll talk about uh, in a minute, I think. We'll move on to other forms of uh, collaboration. So, you have denunciation, uh, French people denouncing each other, breaching these German, these very strict German rules that I mentioned. Again, what's the motive for this? Is it really collaboration as such, or maybe people are trying to do it for money because they could get money from the Germans? Maybe they're just trying to settle personal scores. What is true is that the Germans, according to all the sources I've read, uh, were shocked by the extent of this collaboration and actually quite disgusted by it. Um, so, th- of this denunciation, essentially. Uh, and you could do this by writing a letter, an honest letter, sometimes actually not doing it. Not anonymously and go to speak to the germans about someone um and again there were cases of this so um there's one guy a mechanic who denounces his boss for hiding thirty thousand kilograms of copper and here it's kind of tit for tat presumably he'd had his uh goods requisitioned, so he thought it was unfair that the boss should do his i mean this is me trying to guess on the motive now but um you can see how this gets very complicated to um to examine other people were denounced for having insulted collaborate essentially insulted those who worked for the germans or who were associated with the Germans. Um so this is as i say a kind of a Gray area uh, in collaboration. And speaking of a gray area, the most common, or other the most commonly cited form, what we might consider to be collaboration, um, was women who slept with Germans or who had relationships with Germans. And this, uh, you know, this in the Second World War comes from the term. Uh, it's a very horrible misogynistic term, but uh, horizontal collaboration. Um, so it's not officially, it's not illegal, uh, but it's considered bad form essentially by many among the occupied population. And the scale of this is truly shocking, or at least the scale of the perception. So, for example, you get one police commissioner from the town of Comines, who's repatriated, and he's interviewed by the Allied Secret Services uh, in December 1917, and he says, oh, I estimate that about eight out of ten women had frequented the German, uh, people of all classes as well. Someone else says, oh, maybe about 60% of women are essentially engaging in relations with the Germans. I think these are probably exaggeration, but they do speak to a kind of obsession with this issue among the local population, and there are definitely um, cases, confirmed cases of this, because you have women who admit that they had uh, relationships with Germans. Uh, some even say, well, you know, love does not have a fatherland or a motherland. Um, So they're quite open about this, essentially. Finally, there was never um, any officially sanctioned political collaboration, I should say that. So when there are mayors, maybe who are too close to the Germans, this is not a policy as it was in the Second World War. Um, What you do get is this widespread sense that people are behaving badly and it's usually other French people who are judging them in the sources and as always as I said it's hard to get really to the heart of this the, the real extent of this.
0: So if some people were collaborating were other people resisting in terms of protests violent resistance or conducting espionage for the allies?
1: Yeah so you do get forms of resistance uh, and my book kind of tries to balance the two and, and, and see uh, not necessarily judge which was more prevalent but show you know the spectrum of behaviours and um, what I would say is there was no arms no organised armed resistance. As in the Second World War, and there's a few explanations for this or potential explanations. The first is that the Germans famously um, committed atrocities during the invasions. So, you know, they killed civilians, they burned houses, they engaged uh, acts of sexual assault and so on. And so this already frightened many among the occupied population because they thought, you know, it's far too dangerous to to openly resist in this manner. Another reason is that actually the French authorities were themselves frightened by this. So during the invasion period, they said everyone must hand in all the weapons that they have, so all individuals, um, give them, for example, to the town hall, who'll store them there will give them to the Germans when they arrive and that way you won't go around engaging in individual acts of armed resistance and then causing further reprisals from the Germans essentially. Uh, And the final point I suppose an obvious one but compared to the Second World War what you're talking about is a very highly concentrated uh, area of German troops essentially so you know talking you've got tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of German troops effectively on your doorstep you have over a hundred thousand troops for example in in Lille uh, passing through every month it just seems absolutely suicidal to engage in armed resistance but as you suggest there are other forms of organised resistance that are really obviously active resistance that occurred. They're rarer than collaboration, although they're mentioned perhaps unsurprisingly more frequently in the, in the history books, um, and they come in a few forms. The first is the creation of a handful of clandestine publications uh, that inform the locals on the wider war effort. They, they mock the Germans, sometimes they threaten those who were seen as too friendly with the Germans, or they were just about boosting French morale. The largest operation occurred in Roubaix, so a town north north of Lille, um, and you get a priest called Father Pin, a factory owner called Fermin Dubert, and a, a pharmacy professor called Joseph Rudeau, Uh, and some others, who make an illegal radio receiver to pick up Allied transmissions from the Eiffel Tower. Uh, And this information that they pick up, they include in a newspaper or a kind of tract, essentially, um, to boost French morale to inform people about what's going on uh, in the war. And they create this newspaper from February 1915 until December 1916, when actually the the operation is dismantled by German counterintelligence. The newspaper had loads of different names to try and actually hide from the Germans so they wouldn't think it was the same newspaper. But the two most famous ones are called La Patience or Patience and L'oiseau de France or the Bird from France, which is actually a nickname for planes because they wanted the Germans to think they were being airdropped, not created in the occupied area. Now, the, the main leaders of this operation, when it was dismantled, were uh, sentenced to 10 years imprisonment, um, and actually one of them died uh, in prison. Another organization, uh, another form of organized resistance was Escape Network. So these are organizations that helped Allied service personnel caught behind enemy lines escape occupied France via Belgium and Holland, usually ending up in, in Folkestone, actually. Uh, and so who is caught behind enemy lines? Well, it's French and British soldiers mainly who are sometimes Belgians um, who essentially didn't escape quickly enough uh, when the Germans invaded or as the war goes on it's actually you know airmen, aviators who are shot down and then they hide hidden by locals and then help to escape essentially. Now one of the most famous examples of this escape network is known as the Comité Jacquet or the, the Jacquet Committee. Um, it was based in Lille and it had four main uh, members including Eugene Jacquet which is why it was called that uh, and these men aided at least 200 Allied servicemen escape until the network was brought down uh, by the Germans in late 1915. Over 200 members are arrested. You can see how widespread the was, with a lot of people helping out. And the four main members were executed in uh, in September 1915. And there's actually a statue of them uh, in Lille still. That's actually It's a replacement because the Germans blew up the original statue uh, in 1914. And there's also a statue in Lille to another resistor engaged in this kind of uh, behaviour who is called uh, Louise de Betigny. And she oversaw a larger network called the Service Alice, or the Alice Service. Um, and this worked directly with French and British intelligence. She was arrested in October 1915 and died in prison in September 1918. But her network was actually a lot more successful. It helped uh, over a thousand Allied servicemen escape, and it also engaged in espionage, which is uh, what you hinted at with your question. Um, and this is the final form of organized resistance. So, scholars have shown that in occupied France, Belgium, and Luxembourg, you have between 6,000 and 6,400 individuals, including many women, working for Allied secret uh, services in these networks, espionage and escape networks often combined. Most of them are in Belgium because Belgium is actually run by civilian government, whereas occupied France was overseen by a, a military government to the controls were a lot stricter there. Um, but what was interesting was that the Allied services got local, then helped them escape, took them back to Britain often and trained them there before sending them back in. And how did they send them back in? Well, they send them back in often with hot air balloons or parachutes. Um, and other forms of connecting with Allied secret services include quite cool little ideas such as air dropping carrier pigeons, um, ironically on ha- hot air balloons and then dropping the baskets, getting locals to fill out questionnaires about troop movement, troop numbers, the type of troops there, and then sending the pigeons back over the lines, over no man's land, back to um, unoccupied France. There was even an attempt by um, the British Secret Service from 1917 to send over tiny little helium balloons that the locals could inflate and then attach these questionnaires to. The problem was it didn't work. The balloons got caught on the, on the barbed wire of the trenches, and actually, unfortunately, some people got executed as a result because they'd signed their names on these uh, on these documents. And so, how did the local
0: population deal with people they felt were collaborating with the Germans?
1: Well, those who were considered to be collaborators or, or too close to the Germans, um, perhaps unsurprisingly, became targets. Uh, among some, at least, uh, some members of the wider population. So firstly, the main react to them is to insult, to verbally insult them. And this is particularly the case for the women believed to be sleeping with the Germans. And they were called various derogatory terms. I mean, firstly, uh, things like whore and so on. But actually, often it was, they were puns or um, or just insults derived from the derogatory term for the Germans, the Bosch. So they'd be called women of the Bosch or mattresses for the Bosch, this kind of thing. and be- people had to be careful doing this because these women could denounce those who insulted them to the Germans and, and get them punished. Now, there are a few instances of uh, clandestine publications, not the one I mentioned before, actually, but a different publication um, who explicitly included the names, addresses and kind of sins of individuals, uh, those who were too close to the Germans. So, for example, you get a tract called Les Vidanges, kind of a pun on the life of angels because people were far from angelic um, and also taking out the rubbish in French. And this was published in and uh, nearby towns in January 1917. And this explicitly uh, contained a list of suspect individuals often described in an insulting or mocking way. And it's stated explicitly I'm going to quote the publication now. Um, we are publishing a correct and verified list of filthy females and disgusting characters engaging in commerce and the rest with our enemies. Whilst the husband, brother or son finds himself at the front or are sleeping six feet under, these swine party and prostitute their very beings, their family and their motherland under the German boot. So clearly, these publications are outraged by what's going on and they're inciting violence, they're inciting vengeance, essentially, uh, sometimes explicitly, sometimes more implicitly. And there is some evidence of physical attacks against collaborators during the occupation. So you see things like people um, hitting them or pulling their hair, particularly for women. Uh, This was mostly the case for women who worked in sandbag factories. Um, and you get crowds who would form around them and attack them uh, particularly in 1915 it's rarer after this because the Germans really cracked down uh, on this kind of behaviour um, you get vandalising people's homes particularly smashing their windows or even murder these are very rare cases but you do get entities where those working for the Germans are murdered and what you see is of the liberation you get a slight outpouring of violence but not as much probably as you would expect if you know about the liberation of the Second World War so you get in particular in and nearby towns some smashing of windows some damage of property um, not much physical violence at this point uh, and there's very little evidence, and there are very few cases, but uh, of head shaving, female head shaving, as happened uh, after the Second World War in France, and actually as happened in Belgium uh, after the occupation of the First World War. Um, but this doesn't really happen in occupied France or, or liberated France. It's quite interesting to, to ask why, essentially. And then finally, the other form of vengeance is that people denounced suspected collaborators or those who engaged in bad behaviour to Allied authorities, whether during the occupation, say if they were repatriated, then they would, say, give an explicit list of names to Allied Secret Service of who to look out for or during and the, after the liberation where you could write to police or even the prefect and say this person behaved badly and then denounce them. And then what you also see is people obviously complaining about this in uh, diaries, in letters sometimes to each other or in post-war publications and of course that's how I, c- I can access this information.
0: Which brings me on to my penultimate question about about the legacy of the occupation after 1919. How did the French um, perceive it and, and use it and uh, come to terms with it once they had reoccupied it?
1: Well this is a kind of difficult question in as much as they did and didn't come to terms with it Uh, and it kind of depends what you mean because often actually it was forgotten Uh, so nationally um, the formerly occupied area was officially part of what was known as the initially the liberated and eventually the devastated region which had its own minister and its own ministry and this was all about rebuilding it overcoming the damage of the war essentially and there is a lot of overcoming here there's a lot of money that goes in uh, to rebuild property to try and restart the economy and so on Um, but as you can hear by the title the devastated region what you get is that the occupied area is kind of mixed together with the battlefield, the, the key battlefield zones where there's absolutely incredible destruction. And um, so already you get a kind of conflation of the two and you forget about the specificity um, of the occupied area, even though of course there had been some battles that happened in uh, towns that were occupied, particularly those close uh, to the front. Then more generally, France essentially forgot about this occupation. that's why there's a historian called Anne Becker, who the title of her book is actually Les oubliés de la Grande guerre, the forgotten people of the First World War. And that's how she describes um, these occupied people. So that's what's happening on a national level really. This is actually, perhaps slightly ironically, contradictory to the claims of Georges Clemenceau, the, the prime minister uh, at the end of the war, who visited, liberated Lille in October uh, 1918, essentially the first day of liberation, and gave a speech in which he explicitly stated, nothing will be forgotten. You have led the battle, no less than the soldiers themselves have done. You have set a good example, and when one day the history of this war is written, it would be incomplete if it did not mention with honour the resistance of the great towns of northern France, like Lille, Roubaix, and Tourcran. So the government doesn't even uphold its own promise here essentially because this area is very quickly forgotten it is true that there were history books published in the interwar period that dealt with this occupation um, but these were mainly local by local press so here we see there is a difference between national and local memory now on a local level what we get understandably is that people do remember the occupation um they in particular do value the resistance that clemenceau mentioned so you see monuments to as i mentioned monuments to resistors um you get organizations dedicating to honoring the memory of these resistors and kind of pilgrimages to the, the citadel of lille where they executed this kind of thing but even that peter's out in the 1920s uh, and so by the early definitely the mid 1930s even local people have really forgotten about this occupation and what you see is in 1939 and in in 1940 with the, the new war, uh, war and the new occupation people have to kind of re-find this memory essentially rediscover this memory and then they can draw on it a bit more and actually the historian i mentioned before and their becker has shown there are some interesting links between the second world war and the first world war at least in this area where you get some resistance organizations that are directly inspired by those that came before, uh, and you get some people who are involved in resistance in World War One and World War II. But what happens, of course, is that World War II overtakes this occupation in collective memory and kind of collective consciousness, because it was a bigger occupation. Uh, in a way, it was a kind of more powerful and more affecting occupation with, with longer, uh, longer-term consequences. And so this occupation of the First World War is completely overshadowed for many years to come, and it's only really until the 1990s that historians start to look at this occupation again, and there's kind of been a resurgence since then, and in particular it's about 2000. And I think hopefully I'm part of, of that resurgence.
0: Which leads me on to my final question is where can people learn more about your research and this topic?
1: Um well, my book is actually freely available to download um, it's open access. Um so you just have to search for it uh on the Manchester University Press website, and then there's a little icon you have to click that says open hive, open access version, then you can get the, the full PDF for free, and um, which is good. Um and obviously you can look at my references to, for more uh kind of more links to works that could be useful to people. A lot of them are in French, but there's a few works in English there's actually a few novels um, in English inspired by this and um, there's one by Jojo Moyes I totally forget the name of it now um, uh, and there's also an, a book called In a Forgotten Field which is kind of a, a hybrid between uh, a novel uh, and a work of history but if anyone wants to look at the rest of my work I've published a few articles uh, on this topic I think the best place to find that would be just typing in James Connolly UCL and looking at my, my list of publications there.
0: James thank you very much for your time. Thanks.